0: this evening we're continuing our series in the book of Joshua and this uh, evening we'll be looking at chapter four, all of chapter four you'll find that on page 180 of your pew bible if you're utilizing a pew bible Uh, chapter four is an extension of chapter three in fact if you look at verse two in this particular chapter it says take twelve men from the people from each tribe a man well if you remember in chapter three That particular verse doesn't go on to say anything. It just says that and then it just drops the issue. Well, here it picks it up and tells you exactly why those 12 men were to be set apart. This is God's holy and inerrant word. So let's give careful attention to it. Chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people from each tribe of man. And command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever." And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And there they are to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded, Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them remember they wanted to stay on the other side of the Jordan and God said that they could stay but they had to send their men to fight until they captured all the land about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses, all the days of his life, fulfilling a promise that was made in one and in three. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony, to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place, and overflowed all his banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word and ask that you would speak to our hearts even now. Magnify our Lord as always before our eyes. Do so to the praise of your own glory as you work in and through us now this hour. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Answering the question, why did God create the universe? The Westminster Confession provides the following answer. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness, in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible in the space of six days, and all very good. In short, God created everything to reveal himself to his creation. From this we think of Psalm 19, which states, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night at night reveals knowledge. Knowledge of what you ask? God's attributes. Starting in verse 7 of the same psalm, we also hear that the law of the Lord is perfect, the testimony of the Lord is sure, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In each case, from from the general to the specific, God is at work revealing himself to his creation. And so it should not surprise us then that as we walk through the pages of any book of scripture, and particularly now as we walk through Joshua, that we would find God at work to that same end. In chapter 1, for, uh, for instance, God's faithfulness was on display as we heard him reiterate his promise that he would give the land that, he, that was promised to Moses. <clears throat> and the same then by extension to Abraham in Genesis twelve seven. He also promised that he would never leave them, that we would, he would be with them wherever they went. We say that correlated to us. Hearing Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, rather, saying he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And in Matthew 28, hearing him say he would be with us even until the end of the age. God's faithfulness revealed in full effect. In chapter 2, we saw God's wisdom and his favor. In his wisdom, he moved Joshua To send two men to spy or check out the land seeing that I couldn't help but to think two things first could it have been that Joshua remembered that two people was all you needed for a good and accurate report and God didn't just let them see the land this time but he let them hear how the fame of the Lord's name and promise was at play in the hearts of those whom they would be facing Thus, in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2, we hear these words. Before the men lay down, she came up. This is Rahab. She came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you have fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings Of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction and as soon as we heard it our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you why for the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and under earth below this is a pagan woman bearing witness to who God is in line with God's providence that reached out to her. The point here then is this. Left to our own. We will invariably think the worst. And be the worst. But in the grip and guidance of our God. By and through his wisdom. And his favor. As revealed to us in scripture. We are made to stand. It is God working in and through us. For his purpose. Pleasure. And for his glory. He reveals himself in that way secondly as it relates to God's favor Rahab again a pagan woman was blessed with God's unmerited favor because she was being used to fulfill Genesis 3 15 and so it is those who are in Christ and so it is that those who are in Christ are there because of God's grace his unmerited favor each and every one of us In chapter 3, moving on, we see God's power. We said that it's incomparable, unmatched. You think about it again. We mentioned the fact that the Red Sea was parted. The Jordan here is parted. And ask yourself if anyone or anything has done anything like that and caused people to walk through on dry ground. It's unmatched. What we saw on the cross, unmatched. And it's the same power, again, by the way, that moved upon the face of the waters in Genesis 1 and separated the water from the land. That same power that did much greater, as I mentioned, than parting the Red Sea and the Jordan, but raised our Lord from the dead and thus reconciled us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so... The question with all this knowledge on hand is what are we supposed to do with this knowledge of God's promise, his wisdom, his favor, his power? What are we supposed to do when God reveals himself to our people, to us rather? David in Psalm 103 sums it up well for us. There he writes, bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all his benefits. Don't forget that it was while you were still dead in your sin and without any hope that Christ died for you. Don't forget that you have, all you have was providentially given to you. You heard Pastor Carl even talk about that this morning, that everything that you had came from God. And so knowing this, understanding this, how are you to engage this practice Of God revealing himself and you remembering those things. Remembering to remember. How are you to engage the practice and pattern of remembering? This text reveals two ways and two overarching uh, results here before us. And so I'm going to articulate it this way. The two things that we are to see here in terms of remembering is use what God has prescribed. How do we remember? Use what God has prescribed. And the second is teach the next generation. And the results of that, the world would know God's might and power, and we who are his will fear him, will learn to fear him and walk with him. First, with those things in hand, first use what God has prescribed. Here in our text, there are two things. One, one highlighted and one inferred first there's that which is inferred in keeping with a central theme that we will continue to see and hear throughout this book as we look at our text we will almost immediately hear these words the lord said this should immediately remind us of our lord's exhortation to Joshua in chapter 1 he said only be strong and very courageous And then you will have good success. We should be reminded that what Joshua was being exhorted to follow was the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. But by extension, we understand that these books were inspired or breathed forth out by God himself. And thus, as the Apostle Paul made clear to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, they were and are actually God's word. And anything that comes directly from God, then, is his word. And the principle of not turning away to the left or the right equally applies the minute we hear it. And here we note that as Joshua relayed God's word to the people, everyone obeyed, every jot and tittle they did. And how do we know that? Look at verses 8 and 9. It reads, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded And took up 12 stones out of the midst of Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people in Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. Just as Joshua commanded, Joshua fulfilled everything that God told him. And so just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up the 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. So we've seen that which is inferred, that the word of God should be obeyed, should be followed, every jot, every tittle. Now let's look at that which was highlighted as a tool of remembrance in this text, the 12 stones. Starting in verse 3, there are at least nine mentions. Remember, the Old Testament uh, used repetition as a a tool of reinforcing, okay? There's at least nine mentions of the stones Uh, what was to be done to them, what they were supposed to be used for, and what the overarching effect would be. A close look at the text actually reveals that there were two sets of 12 stones, not one set. Verse 9 informs us that one set was set up in the midst of the Jordan. And verse 20 tells us the other set was set up in a place called Gilgal. But in either case, both would have served the same purpose. They were physical reminders of God's divine intervention on their behalf. They were physical reminders of God's divine intervention. And so in keeping with that train of thought, look at verses 19 and 20. They read, the people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho, and those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. Now, we are reading that and we might miss the significance associated with Joshua highlighting that exact date, but I imagine the people in Joshua's era would have immediately caught it. Ralph Davis sums it up this way. C.F. Keel pointed out that it was on the same day, 40 years before that Israel had begun to prepare for going out of Egypt by setting apart the Passover Lamb. He then reasons, therefore, we might say this day had marked the beginning of redemption. Now it marked its completion. Again, God revealing Himself, His faithfulness, His finishing His work. In Philippians, this, this, this brings to my mind, I couldn't help thinking of the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 1:6 as I read that. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Unless you think this mentioned connection is grasping at straws, Joshua himself makes the connection in verse 23, writing, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. And so you see, brothers and sisters, God didn't just reveal himself to his people, to us, but he's keenly vested in having us not doing what we're so prone to do, and that is to forget. We're not to forget his promises, and when we don't forget, we'll be all the more equipped to praise him when the promise is fulfilled. When we know God, and who he is, when we know what he wants, what he's looking for, when we know all the more we grow in our knowledge of who he is, we are able to come before him according to his dictates and not our own. And therefore, our praise, our worship, our life, our sacrifices are all made in line with the reality of God revealing himself to us, thus fulfilling the chief end of man, which is to glorify God and in the process enjoy him now and forever. So not only are we to be personally vested now in remembering all that God reveals to us about himself, but we are to be committed to the nurture and discipline of our children in the things of God. It's our second answer to that question, how are we to engage this practice and pattern of remembering to remember? And it's by teaching the next generation. Now, those of you who teach, notice well, that when you teach others, you yourself reinforce the things that you're teaching. Sometimes you learn much more, often is the case, that you learn much more than those who you're teaching. So as you go down the road of teaching your children, you are actually reinforcing that which you're teaching them. So when they look and they see the things of God and they ask questions about it, You are telling them, but you are also reminding yourself and reinforcing that which God is teaching you. You obtain a greater benefit sometimes, more often than not, than the ones you're teaching. And so here there are two instances in our text where we hear that the children would inquire about the stones when they saw them. In verse 6 and verse 27, notice it doesn't say, That the children, if the children ask, it says when they ask or when they saw and when they ask. You know why? Because if you are doing what you're supposed to be doing in the Lord, if you are coming to church the way you're supposed to, if you're engaged in the things of God the way you're supposed to, if you're doing what Deuteronomy says in the highways and the byways and your life is a billboard before your children, they won't have any option but to ask because that's the environment they will be in. That is the environment they will be in. And so, well, I'm not even going go there. I started going down the road of talking about why our culture is the way it is even in some churches. But I'll leave that to some... Uh, Some of our imaginations. And again it doesn't say then. If they see. But when. So they will invariably have questions. And here the children uh, were told. Were to be told. Israel passed over this Jordan. On dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan. For you until you passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Which he dried up for us. Until we passed over. So you see, the miracle of the Jordan wasn't just for those who experienced it. Generation after generation were to know of God's goodness, His might, His power, His faithfulness from age to age. God does not always move miraculously and humongously and huge. Like I said, it's only two times in history that he opened a body of water in that way. But they then from generation to generation were to pass on that knowledge. Jesus Christ is not coming and dying on the cross a second time. He died once and for all has the power of death held in the grave in his hand, and we are now supposed to proclaim that miracle from generation to generation in every spirit influence in which we find ourselves. They were rescued, these people, from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, and by God's sovereign power have been taken, they were taken then to a place of promise, hope, and goodness Out of bondage into a place of promise, hope, and goodness. And brothers and sisters, in like manner, our Lord delivered us from death unto life. And through his word, we too have been given our memorial stone. In fact, we saw it this morning. You had a tall guy about six foot four standing in front of a table and telling you that as often as you eat and drink, you do what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And guess what? And so in that sense, you then have children who are not able to partake at this particular time. covenant children, watching you partake, some anticipating the day when they will be able to do the same. That child that you're holding in your hand, that child that was sent over to the choir uh, practice, Those children will one day, or even now, as they see you partaking and taking of that bread and that wine, turn to you and say, why are you doing that? And at that particular point, you have an opportunity, or even the week before as you prepare your heart to partake, you have an opportunity to tell them about the risen Christ, to tell them not only about the risen Christ, but be open and talk about the ragged you. And why the ragged Jew needed the risen Christ to bear witness, to testify to his name, to his redemptive work, his sanctifying power, and his sustaining grace. And to what end? That the world will know God's might and power, and that we would come to fear God. Or, oh, as verse 24 puts it, So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. That you may fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua tells us that God's demonstration of his power at the Red Sea and the Jordan had two overarching goals. That all the people of the earth would know of God's might. And his people would fear him. That is to highly esteem him. Hold him in reverence and awe. Be keenly aware uh, of his discipline, rather. We know from what Rahab communicated to the two spies that the surrounding nations were well aware of God's power and were already shaken in their boots at the prospect of his arrival at their doorstep. We also know that the fear of the Lord was definitely upon Israel. Because see, when you fear the Lord, when you hold him in reverence and in awe, when you aspire to walk with God according to the dictates of his word and not your own heart, guess what? You'll walk in obedience. You'll walk in obedience to what he is saying. Here on the side of the cross, Those two ends are still very much at play. God raised his son from the dead so that all the peoples of the earth may know that he possesses power over life and death. The keys to death, hell, and the grave were in his hand. He handed the father, he handed them over to Jesus who will judge all things justly, righteously, with all wisdom and discernment. He in turn raised us from the dead. We were delivered from God's justly deserved wrath by the miracle of regeneration, by and through the grace and finished work of our Lord. The cross then is God's ultimate display of his might. But don't miss the fact that we too are visible signs of God's might to a lost and dying generation. That's why it's so important that we walk in the beauty of holiness and that we remember the things that God has called us to remember and to know. Joshua, we are being told uh, to remember all that God has revealed to us concerning himself through Joshua. We're being told that to remember all that God has revealed to us concerning himself and what he's done for us. We're reminded that God has provided the means by which we are to remember. And that we have a duty to pass it on to our children. And to what end? That God would be glorified and we would enjoy him forever and ever and ever. Can the church say amen? Amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. You exalted Joshua before the people, and as we had said in chapter 3, Christ was exalted, highly exalted, so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to your glory. And so, Father, as we now come to this particular chapter, and you are now calling us to remember your acts, to remember who you are, the God of all gods, the awesome God, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that you are the sovereign God that created all things for your glory. We ask that you would give us hearts and minds to keep these things dearly to heart. We ask that you would give us the ability to retain the knowledge of your goodness on a daily basis so that we might not walk away, as James said, and forget like a man who walks away from a mirror and forgets what he saw. We ask and I know that, Lord, it is only by the power of your spirit that we would walk in the light of your word. And so we beg upon your mercies that you would keep our minds fully aware, fully endeavoring to walk in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, fully endeavoring to be submitted to your spirit, fully endeavoring, Lord God, to hold before us those things that you've revealed so that we would remember And that we would transfer from one generation to another those things concerning yourself that you would have us to share from one generation to another. Father, again, we rely on you and you alone. For by ourselves, we are nothing, can accomplish nothing, and can do nothing. And so would you move upon our hearts even now and do all things so that others would see us as your ambassadors of your ministers of reconciliation But not see us as the people who are doing those things, but see us as your vessels, so that you might be glorified as you reveal yourself. Continue to reveal yourself to us and to reveal yourself to those whom we share the gospel with in our spheres of influence. Would you do all these things to the praise of your own glory? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.